0: The FT.
1: On the show this week, Crude Oil predicted to hit $130.
2: The banks, and not only Goldman Sachs, but we have seen over the last few days reports from Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and Barclays Capital all pointing to prices by the end of the year between $110 and $130 for Brent and even higher prices for 2012.
1: The UK Green Investment Bank to open early next year.
0: From April 2015, it will have uh, full borrowing powers and it will be able to leverage up to £15 billion. It's quite significant because traditionally the Treasury hates having any government institution with borrowing rights. And there has been a very significant behind-the-scenes battle over the creation of the Green Investment Bank.
1: And we ask, does the US have a coherent energy policy?
3: We really haven't had a comprehensive energy policy for 30 years and it's clear now we have an economic imperative to have one, a national security imperative. We actually even have bipartisan agreement that we need one. What we don't have is bipartisan agreement on what it should be.
1: We finish this week as usual with your comments.
4: We've had some more fallout from the bp Rosneft deal collapse, and particularly the argument that happened between BP and their partners, TNK-BP. That row might have actually harmed TNK-BP as much as it harmed BP itself.
1: You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Let's start this week's show with the oil market. And big prediction from Goldman Sachs earlier this week that crude oil was going to hit or is going to hit $130 a barrel. Now joining me to discuss this is Javi Blas, the FT's commodities editor. What happened on the back of the note? Prices went up, didn't they?
2: Prices went up about $2 after Goldman Sachs told clients that they should just start buying again commodities. About a month ago, the Wall Street banks, who is the largest dealer of commodities among the investment banks, told clients that uh, commodity prices were too high, in particular oil, and that helped to trigger a massive sell-off in oil prices and other commodities. In general, commodities went down about 10%. Now Goldman Sachs has called the market, uh, the bottom of the market, and uh, suddenly prices have uh, started to recover. But the, the picture that the bank is painting for the later part of the year and uh, early 2012 is uh, one of very high prices.
1: And what are they basing that scenario on? Is that just on you know, Libya still being out
2: well, there are three main reasons why Goldman Sachs is bullish now for oil prices. The most important one, as you say, is Libya. Uh, the country remains out of the market. We are losing about 1.4 million barrels a day from Libya. The country still produces a bit of oil, but not much. And obviously not near the 1.6 million barrels a day that it produced before the, the war started. And Goldman and other banks are coming to the idea that the, uh, Libya is going to remain outside the oil market for probably the rest of the year. So that's the, the first main reason. The second reason is that Goldman Sachs believe that non-OPEC production, so countries such as Brazil, Kazakhstan, the United States, obviously the North Sea here in Europe, and other countries outside the OPEC cartel, the growth of oil production from those countries, that it was very strong last year, is surprised to the upside very significantly. It's going to slow down, particularly in the second half of the year, and that's going to tighten the market. And the third reason is that Goldman, although he sees that demand is suffering because these very high oil prices, about $100, however, it's just a slowdown. The demand continues to grow, and particularly in emerging countries such as China, the growth of demand remains surprisingly strong. So the combination of those three factors is why the bank is bullish.
1: What are they saying about the upcoming OPEC meeting in Vienna in June? Are they sort of expecting OPEC to increase production?
2: Well, here is absolutely an open question, and none of the banks that have been speaking or reading the reports have a clear-cut impression of what is going to happen on the 8th of June in Vienna with the OPEC meeting. Most of the banks thinks that maybe OPEC will officialize some of the overproduction that is already happening on the market, but it will not increase the actual production of oil. And in general, they see as also a potential class with the consumers, with the International Energy Agency above production levels. But in general, whatever happens in Vienna, the banks and not only Goldman Sachs, but we have seen over the last few days reports from Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan and Barclays Capital all pointing to prices by the end of the year between 110 and $130 for Brent and even higher prices for 2012.
1: Just a final question. What's Goldman Sachs's track record in terms of calling, calling the oil prices? What did they do in 2008?
2: Well, I think that they are better calling the point when you uh, may see a price going up or going down, rather than picking exactly what is the number. Within the oil market, they have a bit of a reputation sometimes of flip-floppers. And we have seen recently, I mean, only four weeks ago, they told everyone you should sell commodities, you should sell oil, the prices are not going to go up. And now you have the same bank telling investors you should buy oil, prices are going to go up. And obviously in 2008, they made a famous assertion that oil prices will go to $200 a barrel. Obviously when they made that, that assertion, prices were much lower than hundred and forty seven dollars that we picked and There are some views in the market that $200 could have been possible, not has happened, the the financial crisis that just basically brought the the global economy to to a stop. But it's very interesting what is going on between Goldman Sachs and Barclays Capital. None of the two banks are naming each other on their reports, but if you read between the lines, it's very clear that they are talking to each other. Goldman Sachs just four weeks ago said, sell. Barclays Capital said, no, don't sell. We continue to be long-term bullish on oil. Now... Goldman Sachs is saying to investors, we are also bullish on, on oil long term. And Goldman is saying that everything is about timing. That four weeks ago, it was a right call to say sell because indeed they thought that prices were going to fall, as they did. And the timing now is a good timing to a go long and again buy by commodities. Barclays Capital, without naming Goldman Sachs, is talking about consistency, how they are consistent with their long-term view that oil prices are going to continue to go up. So maybe we can read both reports and try to get a better idea of where oil prices are going to go. But if you read in between the two reports, the impression that you get is that the time of $100 oil is here to stay at least until the end of the year.
1: Thank you. Let's move to the UK and government plans for a green investment bank, which it's hoped will raise billions of pounds for energy efficiency and low carbon power generation. Joining me in the studio to tell us more is FT Energy correspondent David Blair. Uh, David, the Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg announced on Monday that the bank is going to open for lending as early as next April. Was that a surprise? Was that news?
0: We had expected the opening date to be rather later than that, so the fact that it will begin lending money next April was a surprise of sorts. And Nick Clegg trumpeted this as being a demonstration of the government's commitment to promoting particularly uh, renewable energy. £3 billion will be set aside for this. And uh, Clegg pointed out that you know at a time when money is very, very tight, that's a demonstration of political commitment. There's not many other sectors of government activity that are getting new injections of funds.
1: Just in terms of lending, because the big debate has always been how much will the bank be able to borrow for these projects? Any discussion about the size of the amount of money it can borrow?
0: Yes, from April 2015 it will have uh, full borrowing powers and it will be able to leverage up to £15 billion. It's quite significant because traditionally the Treasury hates having any government institution with borrowing rights. It wants to preserve its own control over that for very obvious reasons. And there has been a very significant behind-the-scenes battle over the creation of the Green Investment Bank. The Treasury resisted giving it full borrowing powers the Department of Business wanted to limit the sort of sectors that it could offer money to, to the lowest risk sectors. And the Treasury and the Department of Business were also against putting it on a statutory footing, because once you do that, you give it a sense of permanence. Now, on all three fronts, Nick Clegg and Chris Hune appear to have got their way. And we now will have a fully-fledged green investment bank on a statutory basis, able to borrow and able to inject really very significant sums, particularly into renewable energy. Its remit is why but Clegg stated very clearly that its priorities would be sources of renewable energy, principally offshore wind.
1: I appreciate £15 billion is quite a lot of money but in the grand scheme of things £200 billion worth of investment is needed over the next 10 years or so to get the UK up and running in terms of renewable energy. Is, Is it really going to make a difference?
0: Well if you take the renewal of the electricity infrastructure as opposed to energy as a whole, the total cost would be something like £110 billion. Pounds. So £15 billion is a fair slice of that. It's not decisive, but it is a significant sum. And of course, there's the objection, which no doubt will be raised, which is if the capital markets are unwilling to provide money, then why on earth should taxpayers risk theirs? Why should the taxpayer appetite for risk be any greater than that of private investors?
1: Thanks so much, David. Let's move to the states and discussions on energy security. Joining me on the line from Washington is Karen Harbert, chief executive of the U.S. Chambers Institute for 21st Century Energy. Karen, you equated uh, a recent energy event as saying that the lack of a coherent energy policy for decades in the U.S. is finally catching up with us. Um, I just wonder if you could expand on that statement.
3: Well, that's absolutely right. We really haven't had a comprehensive energy policy for 30 years, and it's clear now we have an economic imperative to have one, a national security imperative. We actually even have bipartisan agreement that we need one. What we don't have is bipartisan agreement on what it should be. Some think it should be more focused on the environment. Some think it should be more focused on energy, and we're trying to close that gap to make it energy and the environment.
1: Are you suggesting, therefore, that the U.S. opens up some of the resources that are currently off-limits to industry, um, that it should open those up to development?
3: Well, 85% of America's oil and gas resources have been off-limits for over 30 years. It's high time that we begin to become more self-reliant and use some of those resources here. Not only would it make us more energy secure and, and help stabilize the world oil market, but it would also create jobs, which the American economy is badly in need of right now.
1: Do you mean Alaska with that particular comment?
3: Well, it's the Gulf of Mexico. It's Alaska. It's areas off of our Atlantic and even some areas off of our Pacific. I mean, we are blessed offshore and we're also blessed onshore. And so it really should be up to the private sector to determine which areas hold the most promise and then let them develop those first.
1: In terms of just arguing the case for the environmentalists, I mean, they've seen what happened in the Gulf of Mexico last year on the back of the BP accident. How can you or how can the industry allay concerns of environmentalists given that accident
3: two things have happened after the BP oil spill. One was the industry stepped up and said, we need to be able to prove that we can do this responsibly. And they invested a billion dollars in a new system that would allow them to respond to any sort of a disaster. Secondly, the regulators have stepped up the regulations and the compliance expectations. And the industry has demonstrated with several permits have been issued that they can meet these new standards. So I think the industry is prepared to move forward and use the immense amount of technology they've developed to the benefit of our energy security.
1: What's your sense of, of where the administration is going? Because the White House, I think, was hosting an event recently with Shell to talk about how they could secure permits in Alaska. Um, did you sort of sense that the administration is becoming a bit more pro the oil and gas industry and that there might be a bit of leeway in terms of opening up these areas?
3: The situation in Alaska is just a poster child for what is wrong right now. That uh, opportunity, Shell has bought that lease, it has invested $4 billion, and it has been waiting for a permit for four years for diesel generators off the coast of Alaska. And so they are paralyzed, and that is spreading and permeating across all types of leasing in our country. And I think it's a wake-up call that with money in the ground, invested, ready to go, and they still can't get a permit, something's wrong here, and we need the Administration to really wake up and take action.
1: Do you think things will change ahead of the upcoming or an upcoming election, I guess, in 2012?
3: I'm always an optimist. I hope so. I haven't seen any action. Uh, the president gave a speech recently about energy, which largely did not reveal anything new. Permitting in the Gulf of Mexico is still very slow, both in deep water and shallow water. So, Gas prices may go down slightly, but they're not going down to previous levels. And so this really should be a wake-up call that we've got to do something because our economy needs us to do something very badly.
1: On shale gas in the U.S., obviously that's changed the perspective on energy in the U.S. dramatically. Is there anything that we can learn from that in terms of what it means for America's energy security?
3: The amount of gas we have here was just unimaginable even four or five years ago, so it is a blessing. It's the cleanest fossil fuel. We are awash in it. Prices are pretty low right now, which is making it challenging for the industry, but over time it can be a huge resource for us and potentially even a huge resource for the world as we are looking at one permit right now for a liquefied natural gas terminal to export natural gas. So this potentially is a game changer if we are allowed to continue to use it, and the regulators are taking a very hard look at the extraction of natural gas. and I and I hope we don't shoot ourselves in the foot in that regard.
1: Thanks very much, Karen. And finally, Karen Stacey, the editor of our blog Energy Source, joins us. Karen, what's been going on in terms of dis- the discussions online? Well,
4: we've had a few interesting discussions this week. We've had some more fallout from the bp Rosneft deal collapse. And there was quite an interesting report earlier out this week, it was a mini report really from Moody's, just pointing out that the collapse of the BP-Rosnev deal, and, and particularly the argument that happened between BP and their partners, Russian partners in TNK-BP, the group of backers called AAR, that row might have actually harmed TNK-BP as much as it harmed BP itself. So the report was almost uh, suggesting that, what AAR did in putting up these legal blocks to the bp Rosneft deal might have been almost cutting the nose off to spite their face, and that it's going to be very difficult for TNK-BP, the Russian joint venture now, to move forward and to come up with joint strategy because there's so much animosity between the parties. We also had a report on a survey showing that private equity is starting to back out of green energy and clean tech because of worries that there might be a bubble going on in this sector, that investments are too expensive and they're not going to produce the returns that they're promising readers have been fairly dismissive of this idea one said well it's just the illusion of a bubble going on he said yes things are getting more expensive but you know that's natural the market's maturing that's going to happen the real test is going to be in about 2-3 years when we see when some of these private equity houses try to exit the sector
1: Thanks very much Kieran. this is actually Kieran's last week as editor of Energy Source he's moving on to the Westminster team at the FT and this is probably the right time to wish you all the very best And good luck.
4: Thanks very much, Sylvia.
1: And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank Karen, David, Javier, and of course, Kieran. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye.
0: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.